This podcast is brought to you in part by Sing and Dog Double Read Supplies. Sing and Dog Double Reads is an online double read shop and one of the largest suppliers of high quality and affordable professional and student reads for oboe and bassoon in the USA. Please visit www.singandog.com to see all of their products. That's S-I-N-G-I-N-D-O-G.com. Janet Ingle loves the oboe. She has built her business on providing high-quality, handmade reeds, education, and a sympathetic ear to oboists across the country. When you order from Janet Ingle Reeds, you get prompt communication, reeds or cane handcrafted to your specifications, and cheerful, friendly customer service. All orders are mailed within one week, sometimes much faster. Single orders or monthly read subscriptions are welcome, and she'll work with you to find the combination of response, resistance, stability, and flexibility that's right for you. Double Read Dish listeners can use the code DISH, that's D-I-S-H, all caps, for 10% off your first order at JanetIngle.com. Hi, I'm Galit Kaunit. And I'm Jackie Wilson, and you're listening to Double Read Dish a podcast for oboists, bassoonists, and the people who love them. Hey everyone, we are in the car. Sorry for all the background road noise. We are driving back on uh, the way home from a completed successful Driftless Winds Trio tour. Oh my gosh, so exhausting. I mean, more exhausting for you because this process <laughs> is two days longer. Tell them how you started off this tour. Yeah, so I drove to your house in Missouri, which was about eight hours, and then you drove us the remaining seven hours or so to Wisconsin, where we met up with our trio mate, Corey, and we had... Intense rehearsal time, and then we got to um, go to University of Wisconsin-Madison and... The Milwaukee High School of the Arts. Milwaukee High School of the Arts. Um, some elementary schools in Dubuque, Iowa, and it was really cute. Um, oh and- my gosh, tell them about the assembly. Well, first, um, we went there, and they did not have enough stands for all of us. So, of course, we improvised, <laughs> and we selected... Uh, students from the audience to come be our stands and hold the music for us while we performed like little one page stuff. It was really cute. It was cute. They were like laughing and like <laughs> making eye contact while they were holding our stuff. It was funny. I was like, hi, you know, the only thing you should know is that I make a funny face when I play. So don't laugh at me while I play. And she was like, <laughs> but it was super cute. Oh, wait, we also should mention that we're coming from the University of Iowa. That was the last ah, stop on our tour. Yes. University of Iowa, we all did master classes for the individual studios and then gave a recital and we're driving back after the recital. So these were three fast, furious days. Did yes. not get up after 5 a.m. the whole time. <laughs> Today I was up at 4.30. Of course, we know that's like not super unique for me, but still, I feel like I have the right to complain. Oh my gosh. What do you think the hardest thing about tour is? Um, for me, it's just keeping up the energy because each performance, you know, trio music, there's no rests. Yes. So each performance is really tiring. And then keeping up the energy from one day to the next, we had really long days, which I really liked. Yeah. Um, we, we fit a lot in, which we always do. 
And, uh, but that's, I think for me, that's the most challenging thing is like having the energy to get through the program again. Yeah. I think for me, it's like, you can't push stop on the life you live every day. Yeah. But when you go on tour, you kind of have to. And so I don't even want to think about what my email box looks like (laughs) right now and all the grading that's waiting for me and kind of like getting prepared, like, okay, colleagues and students, I'm going to be out of town for the rest of the week yeah. and that type of stuff. And yeah. like, I don't know, like, I've ever heard people say vacation's hard because when you have to come back, it's like worse than if you hadn't taken a vacation. Mm-hmm. Um, and tour's not exactly a vacation. It's really cool opportunities, but I think that's the hardest thing is staying on top of the real, life real that life. is still going on, yeah. yes, outside. But Although, on the same token, it's fun to, like, take a pause and mix things up yeah. and get together with people I don't see very often yeah. and make good music, so. I also am lucky in that I have a great GA. Hey, Scott, who takes care of things when I'm gone and I trust him with my students and I know that things are going smoothly while I'm away, so that's really awesome, too, to know that you can leave and it's going to be okay when you come back. Well, and it's right after midterm, so maybe my students aren't so sad. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Dr. Wilson, we'll miss you. Let's go get pizza. (laughs) (laughs) So what was your favorite part of tour? My favorite part of tour, I think, I'm biased, but it was um, getting to hang out with my mentor, Benjamin Coelho, this morning. Um, I actually said, can I have a lesson and have, like, you know, a tune-up? Once you've been out of school for a while, it's easy to, you know, not remind yourself of all the, like, super details, super consistently or whatever. Um, So I just wanted to get his perspective on my playing and had an awesome, awesome lesson. And it's just so fun to catch up and hang out and see him again. So that's probably my favorite part. What about you? I really liked meeting all the people that we met. And um, most of them I hadn't. I wasn't meeting for the first time, but it was, you know, solidifying relationships um, that had been started maybe at IDRS or something. So you meet somebody like briefly and then you get to go to their school and see them in action and interact with them a little more. And it was just really nice to get to know my colleagues at sister schools better and, you know, make connections with people and see how other places do things. And it was inspiring to me. I'm really happy that I had a chance to meet uh, meet up with all of these people. I remembered one other favorite thing. Okay. Coffee. (laughs) (laughs) Since day one, Genda Reed Knives have been the highest quality and the sharpest Reed Knives on the market. And Genda Industries has been a driving force in educating double reed players on how to sharpen and maintain their reed knives since it is the single most important tool in our reed making kit. Now, Genda has launched a full line of sharpening equipment to meet your sharpening needs. They are offering a wide variety of full-size and travel-size sharpening stones, strops, and compounds that can be utilized in the studio, the music hall, or on the go, and will make your sharpening better. You've got a good reed knife, now it's time to start using good sharpening equipment. Add the code DRDGENDA, all caps, no spaces, at checkout and get 10% off any Genda Reed Knife maintenance kit, Reed Knife Sharpening Book, Cutting Block, and Reed Tool Roll. 
Visit them at gendaindustries.com. That's J-E-N-D-E-I-N-D-U-S-T-R-I-E-S.com. Oh, and they're more than just read knives. JDW Sheet Music is an online store that specializes in original chamber pieces for wind instruments. The website offers a variety of music transcriptions of composers like Debussy, Bach, Piazzolla, and Rachmaninoff. Owner and arranger Jessica Wilkins has produced over 60 chamber music arrangements featuring oboe and bassoon. Jessica's works have been performed at colleges across the country, as well as the 2015 IDRS conference in Tokyo, Japan. For access to the entire JDW Sheet Music catalog, visit www.jdwsheetmusic.com. We are very excited to welcome Professor Bassoon at the University of Michigan, Jeff Lyman, to the podcast. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. We always start by asking a very broad question, but we'd love to know um, how you got started with the bassoon, um, what your training was, and how you got to where you are today. Okay. Uh, well, I like so many bassoonists, I started on another instrument, and that was saxophone. And the only reason I started on the saxophone was because I found one in our upstairs bathroom closet one day, and uh, it, it was it belonged to my mother, who uh, actually um, had her degree in music education. And so, you know, as with every music ed student. Um, you take secondary instruments, and she had a saxophone of her own, and I guess it just uh, ended up there. And so I was curious kid and asked what this was and could I play it. And um, it was only two years later that I was waiting for a friend of mine. Uh, we were at a summer music program in uh, Montrose, New York, where I grew up. And um, I was waiting for this friend of mine to finish uh orchestra rehearsal and I was sitting outside of the rehearsal room and I remember to this day that the, the orchestra was playing an arrangement of Simon and Garfunkel's um, uh, Scarborough Fair and <laughs> in between verses this instrument played uh, a little vamp of one note I think it was you know for some reason I remember it as in a third space E in the bass clef and uh, just da 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 Da, da, da. And I heard that, and I grabbed my teacher who was walking by and said, what was that? What was that? And he said it was the bassoon. And I said, well, can I switch and play that? And he said, because of that, you want to play? <laughs> and uh, so, <laughs> so we did. And um, it, that was in the summer before eighth grade. And then my, my father uh, got transferred in his job to uh, from uh, Montrose, which is about 45 minutes north of New York City to uh, um, Hazleton, Pennsylvania, uh, in northeast Pennsylvania. And so I went from a, a very sort of um, uh, strong music program to one that nearly didn't exist in my junior high in Pennsylvania. And then in high school, went to uh, uh, another school district and um, the orchestra program was better there. But I still had only, um, I, I had lessons during my freshman year of, of high school. Uh, and then um, that bassoonist with the Northeast Pennsylvania Philharmonic, Gail Ober from Lancaster, PA, um, moved away. Uh, so for the next three years, I sort of was self-taught. 
and I think it was my my fear that I would never get into a good school that um, inspired me to you know I, I was constantly working to buy more and more music so I was sort of teaching myself buying every etude book I could afford buying every um, record album I could afford and um, thankfully I I auditioned for Bernard Garfield and um, he accepted me and um, I showed up at at school and I, I guess I had more music than most of the other bassoonists that I, I was uh, you know studying with and those uh, I guess that practice of buying a ton of music and buying lots of recordings helped me quite a bit and it it, it continued for the rest of my life so I have a huge library now and um, tons of recordings and um, that brought me to uh, uh, my professional career, which started uh, after my undergrad was finished at Temple University, um, I got my first job in the Savannah Symphony in Savannah, Georgia, uh, under Christian Badia, and I uh, was there for eight years, which included a unfortunately a strike. Um, and in those eight years, uh, I basically learned what I didn't know. You know, nothing like a, a professional gig to to show you where your strengths and weaknesses are and it was playing in the Colorado Music Festival in Boulder one summer when I met Richard Bean and um, Richard uh, was had just started at the University of Michigan and um, he was extremely helpful to me with some of those problems that I was finding I, I, I had still in my playing and he uh, suggested I come to Michigan to study with him, and there I got my master's and doctorate, and in the last year of my doctorate, got my first teaching position at Bowling Green State in Ohio. That was followed by 10 years of teaching at Arizona State, and in 2006, I came back to my alma mater here at Michigan. So, very long answer, but <laughs> that's, that's it in a nutshell, and um, all along those those paths, I've met incredible amazing inspiring people and um um i thank every one of them every day for what they've they've given to me and um hope to pass on their wisdom to everybody who comes in my studio before we continue with questions specific about you whenever we have um people who've studied with these like really legendary figures we always like to ask about them so could you tell us a little bit about what lessons and studying with Bernard Garfield was like? Oh, I could go on forever. I mean, there is there is no one in in the bassoon world um, who has done more to shape my life than Mr. Garfield. I, st I still can't even call him Bernie, I, uh, you know, to this day. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the lessons were, uh, were, were basically... Um, we would there are format that I, I kind of follow to this day where um, he would uh, work on some um, uh, warm up fundamentals uh, at the beginning of each lesson and then an etude and um, solo works or excerpts. But one of the things that that was different is that we either had lessons at his um, home in Haddonfield, New Jersey, or at the Academy of Music, where at that time the Philadelphia Orchestra uh, still played. And so um, the 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 biggest takeaway from Mr. Garfield's lessons were that um, everything, especially, of course, the orchestral excerpts, 
everything was related to context. And by that, I mean that um, I'm thinking, for instance, of uh, there was one time he had me go through uh, from, you know, start to finish the um, the Saul Schoenbach uh, contemporary um, excerpt book. I'm, I'm not remembering the title exactly, but it was, um, you know, after Stadio and uh it had uh, works by Hindemith, Prokofiev, Stravinsky, all um, uh, even like less lesser known things uh, by Bloch and, and everyone. So um, I remember the day that we were working on the Prokofiev Third Piano Concerto, where I realized um, he just he said something about uh, how this one particular uh, excerpt fit into um, the orchestra. And there was some light that went on in my head, and I thought, every time this guy tells me something, it's about my relationship to somebody else. And that that never left my head, that, that um, uh, the, the value that I took from his work was uh, not just how to play something, but how to play it with everyone else involved, and um, the subtleties of... of uh, shaping a phrase because of this or that line in the cello, uh, or um, you know, making sure that in Strauss to the Island Spiegel, this syncopated passage, all you have to listen for is the flute, you know, and and so um, he, in in so many ways, just made me realize. I mean, there's, I, I use this phrase very often that with with bassoon. We're um, we're always the mixer, never the gin, and we're uh, <laughs> no, we we are uh, an instrument that that thrives on relationships with other instruments, and and um, we musicians have to thrive on a relationship with other other musicians. So in many ways, I think that realization that one day um, saved me a lot from the the uh, sort of this affliction that so many people have in, in music where you are identified by the chair in which you sit and and you may be happy in one chair but two feet to the right or left would would make you miserable and um i i think i i learned from garfield that your your part is critical to the whole and um uh, every lesson whether we were working on a, a major concerto or or an excerpt or, or just just anything he 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 never said a word to me without the context of that of how your your part fits in with everything else and i think that's one of the qualities that made him such a brilliant orchestra player and that uh, attracted me to his playing and to his recordings um yeah i i just i i quote him every day of my life i mean he uh, um i owe him everything that's a great philosophy for life in general, too, you know. I wonder if that also helps people with performance anxiety. You know, mm -hmm. you think, oh, I have a solo, I have a solo, I have a solo, but it's not really a solo most of the time. Exactly. <laughs> right. exactly. That's, 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 that's a great point because um, the, the more you rely on those around you, the more you realize you have that, that network Right there, and and uh, I remember, uh, you know, just when you sent me uh, typical questions, and one of them was about performance anxiety. I thought, well, it, it, that's it's such a strange 
um, thing to talk about when you're not in it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, I try to go out either in recital or orchestral performance or whatever it is um, as as absolutely prepared as I am. And I think um, the way I face performance anxiety does hinge a lot on on the um, the relationships you expect to have in whatever performance situation you're facing. So um, I've got fantastic colleagues here. I, I've gotten to the point where with some of them, I know they're playing so intimately that I, I'll, I'll, I'll rely on, on that for, uh, you know, that trusting those things that I, I, I know will come from those artists um, to, to, you know, bolster whatever hard passage or, or, you know, difficult entry I might have in a, in a chamber piece. So, so yeah, these that that concept that I I got from Garfield, and that I see in every single performance, I think, is what helps to manage performance anxiety. It, it never completely takes it away, but um, um, I think I think preparation and thorough practice um, should give you the confidence to. Um, to be a part of that relationship. And so I don't know if that makes any sense, but uh, mm-hmm. uh, that, that's how I, how I approach that. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that. We had a lot of listener questions in anticipation of your interview. And I'd like to ask a question um, that sort of both Emily and Dylan posed. But basically... What do you tell collegiate bassoonists who want a career in academia? And on the same token, um, how do you determine who to interview when you're searching for a position? Sure. Um, Well, I saw those questions posted, and I've been thinking a lot about how best to answer them. Um, As far as training in order to go into academia, um, I'll – I'll start with a um, maybe an approach that that they didn't expect, which is um, uh, think of the the file that we uh, th- those of us on say a search committee um, ask you to submit when you're applying for a job. So if I if I focus on those materials, it might you know. Uh, sort of looking backwards, uh, show what kind of training is best for an academic position. So when you apply for um, a teaching position in a university, um, we typically ask for, um, of course, a set of recordings. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. These, uh, sometimes universities specify live recordings, sometimes they don't specify them, but um, one word of advice I would say to everyone who things that down the road they might uh, apply for an academic job is start building uh, a video and an audio resume for yourself. Record every concert that's, that you possibly can. Um, it's getting so easy now to, to just simply have um, really good recordings of everything that you do. So um, build both a, uh, a paper resume and an audio or video resume. The more that we can see of you uh, uh, in, so, so sort of the, the concert environment, the better. Um, and in that that collection of, of uh, videos or audio files, build a, a broad picture of yourself. Because one of the distinctions that I look for when hiring um, 
a colleague or when um, picking a student for, say, the DMA program, um, is the depth and breadth of their experience and their repertoire. Because uh, the academic uh, environment is one that not only encourages a broad approach to repertoire, but in fact, in my mind, requires it. Um, we are an educational institution, and we want, um, or <clears throat> I'll, I'll stop saying we, I want colleagues who um, really uh, are encyclopedic in their um, knowledge of the repertoire, in their interest in music. Everyone will have a specialty or a specialization, but um, if I'm hiring someone to teach a broad group of students, those students need someone who has the answers and has the experience, or if they don't immediately have those answers, is someone interested and actively um, uh, engaged in finding those answers. You know, there are times when someone brings a piece of repertoire into their lessons that I've not heard about, and then I, I learn it. You know, uh, uh, I'd hate to be a faculty member who um, comes in with a um, certain approach to repertoire and uh, and shares only that with their students. So, um, so the first thing that we would ask for is uh, uh, some recordings. So start now building those libraries of recordings. And then um, I also tell everyone um, applying for positions to tailor the choice of those recordings not only to showcase themselves the best, but also to um, uh, to meet the expectations of the institution they're applying to. You know, some some institutions might have. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about one of the places that I, I, I used to work at, Bowling Green State in, in Ohio. Um, they have a a, a very uh, uh, long running um, new music festival. So I included. Um, recordings of new music for that job. Um, uh, some others might have different programs that that you uh, have recordings that uh, might they might find interesting. So that's one part of the application. The next is the resume. Most orchestras ask for a one-page resume. The academic resume is completely different. You want to have not only your performances, uh, your performance experience listed, your educational experience listed, but also um, in a curriculum vitae, everything else that we might need. Um, all the all the information you can provide about, again, what I said before, the depth and breadth of your experience with this instrument. So, um, if you have uh, a private teaching studio, tell us about that. If you have, um, uh, if say you were a graduate student and you had teaching assignments for uh, whatever program you were in. Tell us about that. Um, of course, your employment history. Uh, so the, the curriculum vitae is where you really tell the story of your life. And because we're not simply hiring a player, um, a university, uh, your, your, your home department, the broader music school, the broader university, all look at you from uh, different perspectives and um, the tenure process at a university is uh, a review that starts in your home unit, but then goes to the, the broader school or college, then to the, the, the full university, and finally to the, the provost or the president. Um, and everyone looks at your contributions in a different way. You know, uh, 
Your home department might, of course, value you as a player, but they also will evaluate how you um, interact with and how, you know, this this is a little bit cold, but how you attract students to the university, because like it or not, universities are, are businesses, and um, we need to fill the studio. And the quality of player you attract uh, or quality of student you attract is something that will be reviewed. So um, we, we look at that. Uh, uh, your experience uh, prior to getting the job, but especially while on the job. So in that um, uh, in that way, we need to know in your curriculum vitae everything about the uh, experience of teaching that you've had. Um, some universities uh, encourage or, or might even require um, their applied faculty to have some other academic specialization, either um, research, writing articles, uh, uh, maybe technique books, maybe read-making books in our case, um, uh, uh, put that in your resume. Or start uh, um, thinking about that as a student. You know, if you were uh, imagining yourself in an academic position at a place that did require some kind of, of non-performance um, you know, research. What might that be? Are you interested in a specific rep, in a specific um, performance practice, in the, the music of a certain culture? Whatever you can do to start um, bringing a, a broader identity to yourself beyond the playing, the playing uh, alone, that's a good thing uh, to start doing, both as a student and, of course, when you're in an academic position. Then um, finally. The um, besides the CV and the recordings uh, will of course be checking references because everyone who's a musician knows it doesn't matter where on stage you might walk there's going to be someone there you know you've worked with before so we musicians are a, a huge family but also a tiny family at the same way where everyone knows everyone so um, provide us with references of people who really really know your work well. Um, the, the best thing for me when I'm reading a file is to find letters of recommendation that really go deep into a person's um, experience and, and they're, they're not limited to those two paragraph things from a, a, a famous musician that, uh, yes, I, I met so-and-so in a master class, their intonation was great, um, signed XYZ. Um, uh, the it, I often am asked by colleagues who are, are principally performers somewhere, like, how can you stand all that paperwork in academia? And I say, well, I have a huge impact in my day-to-day -day life here in, the, in a university situation that I never had when I was, uh, you know, starting out in the orchestra track. And um, so to get to both Emily and Dylan's questions, um, Prepare for a university position, if that's where you, you hope to go, by being the broadest, uh, the most broadly based musician you can be. And look to um, those mentors in your life uh, and, and see what, what their broad picture looks like and, and then create one for yourself. So, um, uh, you know, be it uh, 
maybe like, like I said, the music of a specific period. Say you, you have expertise in uh, the Baroque era and Baroque music, you, maybe even if you've played period instruments. Play that up. Make sure that we know everything about that. Make sure that in the interview process, you show why that excites you and how it might impact your teaching. But in the end, to, to go to Dylan's question about how do we pick someone when we've got, say, we, we limit it, we, we come down to a pool of maybe three people. Um, once, once we bring them to campus, oh, and that's a, a, another uh, differentiation between the typical, uh, say, orchestra audition and the interview process for hiring a, a academic position is that um, the university pays for your travel and your housing during the interview. Orchestras <laughs> <laughs> don't do that. Um, so when we bring someone to campus, um, they're going to have interviews with the search committee, um, with the dean, um, possibly an open interview with faculty members. You know, very often a search process might include um, putting the, the candidate into a room where um, other faculty members might come in and, and chat with them a bit. Um, you might have a um, uh, get-together with the, the current students in the studio for them to ask you questions. So that very process, to have all of those interviews, is incredibly different from the orchestral um, uh, audition process. And I, I love that about the academic process because you get to be yourself in, in so many different ways. You get to express yourself. Um, we will be looking, uh, as far as the search committee, we will be interested in how you interact with us um, off the stage as well as on the stage because 99% of the time you are uh, interacting with your colleagues here, it's not on the stage. Um, so the the relationship that we hope to have with you is, is um, being examined in that process. So we, we both will be looking for obviously the best player, the, the person who exhibits the best teaching, um, who exhibits um, a record of performance and or teaching that promises uh, to continue over the long, uh, you know, the long uh, time frame. And then, uh, uh, you know, we, we're looking for for colleagues, we're looking for uh, personalities that can attract great students. Um, we're looking for a person you want to play recitals with, uh, that a person that you 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 are confident that when um, a student enters their studio, they're going to come out uh, having learned something terrific. And um, uh, so that's part of the interview process. The um, You'll also have a usually an hour-long recital to give. Um, so uh, the recital is a, another fantastic opportunity for you to to demonstrate a couple of things. I always advise my students when doing um, interview recitals to to play to try to make a program that that satisfies every person in that audience who's evaluating you because it's a different kind of recital. It's not. It's not one that you might give to the general public. You are being um, examined by the committee, by the, the your potential studio of students, uh, by the other faculty. So uh, we might want to hear something very standard just to know that you know the standard repertoire. Your students are, are very often going to be, or more often going to be, learning from you 
you know, the core repertoire, not necessarily the wildest contemporary piece that might interest you at the moment. But if that's part of your specialization, bring one of those pieces to the to the um, interview recital. So that again is like an hour long demonstration of your uh, your strengths in many areas. The the ability to demonstrate that yeah, once once you get into that teaching studio, you know what what students need to learn. So do something standard, do something unusual, um, and then after the recital, you'll likely have a master class. So um, we will be looking um, at the candidates as to how they how they interact with the students, how they um, effectively address the playing that's happening right in front of them. I hate it when um, I'm interviewing a candidate and their master class sounds like a lecture on the piece rather than um, the task at hand with that student who's sitting in front of you. Uh, we want to know the effectiveness of your teaching by um, what you say to the student in that moment. Um, not that, uh, say, they, they they play the Saint-Saëns Sonata and you give a lecture on the Saint-Saëns Sonata. No, you know, if the kid was sharp on the first G that, that they played, I don't care about your lecture, you know. So um, let's see. So I think I've got everything. We had interviews, uh, recital, um, master class. Oh, <laughs> one of the most important things: <laughs> breakfast, lunch, and dinner with the committee. Uh, <laughs> if you're if you're having a social interaction that is awkward, that's not good. Um, you're so, but but hopefully, this example of of looking at preparing for an academic career by looking at how you're going to be evaluated by you know during the hiring process might give. Um, students an idea of of how to prepare for it. So I hope all of that said answers Emily and Dylan's questions. But <laughs> if not, they know where to find me. <laughs> uh, we got several questions for you about instruments. Um, so we're going to kind of combine some questions. Um, Christopher wanted to know about your bell bassoon, what your experiences have been with that, what made you um, want to get a bell bassoon. And then Carissa um, is kind of experiencing uh, cost as a prohibitive factor in getting um, a bassoon and feels like her current instrument maybe holds her back. Um, so she wanted to know about, you know, is it does expense make playing easier and so we thought it would kind of be just a, a broad question about equipment and how you approach equipment and advise your students on equipment given that we play a very expensive instrument right wow okay <laughs> well um before i answer specifically about the bell which i adore um i'll tell you the instruments that i've had throughout my career and and i, I mentioned this only because i'm i'm happy to to say that I've played bassoons by several different makers, and um, uh, that might be why I now play a bell. I, my first instrument, believe it or not, was um, something I got as an undergrad, which, or, or uh, at the start of my, not, wait, when did I get it? I got it in high school. Believe it or not, a 3000 series heckle, which was probably made when Brahms was alive. But <laughs> one of those things where, where um, uh, we, we got it, it was, you know, somebody had it in New York City and we bought it. And to me, it was a heckle. And I played a 3000 series heckle for my 
first three years in undergrad, my undergrad study, and um, then, of course, I needed something more modern. And at the time, um, uh, uh, Mr. Garfield's uh, teaching assistant, Kathy White, uh, now Kathy Vigilante, was um, coming back from Europe. She used to play in the Hague Philharmonic, and she um, picked up a, a Puchner, uh, and uh, brought it back. I bought that, and uh, it was it was a fantastic Puchner. I loved it, and that was what I had for um, my eight years in the Savannah Symphony. When I got my uh, master's and doctorate, I went to a Fox 601, and I loved that one. Um, that got me all the way through to my time. Uh, yeah, it, it, that lasted me through Bowling Green. Uh, um, Arizona State and my first year back at Michigan, and that's when, unfortunately, uh, Hugh Cooper passed away, and um, his family uh, was selling some of his instruments, and they asked if I wanted to buy his 6,000 series heckle, and um, I, that's what I had just before the bell. So I played professionally on uh, two heckles, uh, uh, Puchner, a Fox 601, and now a bell. So to answer the question about the bell, Christopher's question, um, I found that every time at, say, an IDRS conference or a double re-day, when I had a chance to play the uh, Ben Bell's instruments, I loved them. I just, I, I picked them up and and just thought they were the, the greatest instruments. And so um, I just had this this itch in the back of my brain to, to get one, and I I ordered it uh, last year. It, he, it was nearly exactly a year when it was ready for delivery, and um, I, I put it together, started playing on it, and I just I fell in love immediately. Um, the scale is incredibly even. The the um, it it plays uh, the entire range with such ease. The the Ben is an absolute genius at making the instrument seal well. And um, um, on top of that, it's a gorgeous bassoon. So um, if if Christopher or anyone else is thinking of getting a bell, just please go ahead and do it. Just uh, and We live in a different world now where so many of the um, – the, the bassoons that are being made today are excellent. I To get to the other question about expense, um, the fact that I've – I'm happy to be able to advise people on on different instruments because I've played them. I've, I'm not someone who has exclusively played one manufacturer's bassoon. So, um, uh, but the the to turn the question to expense after I've I've you know praised Ben and his instruments as much as I possibly can. Um, the the best thing I say to students or to or, or, I mean, the best advice I can give to students or to, to parents as well about this expensive instrument is to buy the best that they can afford. And that can be, there, there, there's a wide variety of, inst- of instruments out there. So I know um, exactly what a hardship this can be on, on a family or, or an individual to buy an instrument. Um, the good thing is that bassoons, um, if they're well cared for, do last a long time. So used instruments are a very viable option. Um, and... I've, I've got a couple students in the market for instruments right now, and I've told them the same thing. Don't buy a name. You buy an instrument, um, an instrument that, that matches you and your playing. So don't be 
fooled by this old idea that everyone must play a certain make or model of instrument. So um, that that doesn't drop the price, I'm afraid. For you know that advice that only goes so far. That, that if you ha- if you're lucky enough to find an instrument that that is that match for you and is um, affordable, then then snap it up. But um, I I I don't have any. Uh, you know, advice other than winning the lottery is to, uh, you know, come up with that that money. I'm... Sean would like to know, what are some techniques you might use to lure new students to the instrument, and what are some exercises to train beginning bassoonists in their first lesson starting out to be successful right away? Okay, that's that's something I, I, I do have some ideas on. Um, Every bassoonist I've ever spoken to, um, and including uh, both of you at the, uh, the beginning of this interview, ask about you know what what attracted you to the instrument. Um, and one of the best things that we as um, teachers can do is uh, go and do demonstrations for um, junior high band programs, orchestra programs. It's at that age when they're moving out of junior high possibly into high school that most bassoonists if they started on another instrument um uh switch to bassoon so um you you, we all know uh, you know some instance when we were uh young students where we heard uh, a bassoonist play and it made an impression on us um so doing uh recitals for Potential transfers is a great idea, um, uh, and, and you know you almost always will see someone who then heard you uh, play and uh, wants to become a bassoon. So that's that's one way. Um, another way is to uh, you know partner with um, local uh, band and orchestra directors in your high schools and junior highs, and and. Ask to ask them to identify students who are potential transfers, but who are good on their current instrument. The bassoon is so unforgiving as far as intonation and technique goes that you don't want that person who is cowering in the, you know, uh, bass clarinet section of their band and and trying to hide to then become the bassoonist because the the bassoonist in high school we we've all had that experience of being the only person playing that instrument or one of just a few um so you want to have someone who's excited about the challenge that the bassoon brings to be a a, a transfer candidate um i'm working with one of my students right now on just that kind of a project where um we're we're, we're doing uh, a two-pronged project where um i'm teaching or or i'm I'm helping to teach him become a better teacher by working with um, uh, either, you know, new transfer students or recent transfers to the bassoon to sort of examine the vocabulary and the act of teaching, meaning um, everybody seems to learn from the Weissenborn, and that book was written to be used by a professional bassoonist teaching other bassoonists. And so a lot of it is... Um, uh, a lot of the Weissenborn method is actually the method of the, the teacher using it. You know, you have to fill in the blanks on how to form an embouchure, on how to, you know, start notes. Uh, the book has exercises, but not a lot of real teaching techniques. So part of this project with transfer students is um, going right to the the beginner level and um, 
finding the best way to verbalize how to um, form an embouchure. Um, and then take that verbal action that is almost always paired with a demonstration and write it down as if you're not there. You know, what kind of technique can you put into a, a teaching method that is complete and clear on its own? Because so many of these people I was just mentioning, the local band and orchestra directors, are not themselves bassoonists, but they might play trumpet, they might play violin, but they're still going to have students that they have to teach in the beginner uh, uh period. So um, that's one thing that we're working with, uh, that I'm working with my student on. The other thing is um, just um, working with these local directors to find those students. And thanks to these, the incredible directors in my area, we are, we have four new transfer students, four of the most incredibly engaged and, and excited um junior high and high school students that I've, I've seen. So I hope that these these four students become, uh, you know, really, really strong bassoonists. But um, that's what I would say. Start out by demonstrating um, the bassoon in some way to um, junior high programs and then look for the excited, engaged student who's already doing well on his or her instrument. Because if they can make a great sound and play in tune then they'll most more likely be able to do that on the bassoon as well. So our last listener question comes from Mark Lauer, who is a grad student at Florida State, and he wanted to know your advice for something um, you're really well known for, which is discovering new repertoire, commissions, championing lost or forgotten mm-hmm. works. Um, hints for that. Oh, well, um, I'd go back to what I was saying earlier about how not having a teacher for most of my high school years um, helped develop this, I think, uh, appetite for new music and for new repertoire. Um, because it, um, in my experience, it, it hasn't been um, just new music that that I've I've looked for. It's early music. It's it's unknown repertoire from any period, um, and I think. I've, I've become known for working with a, a lot of new music simply because I I I, I do that. But I also I, I you know I love digging into the earliest repertoire that we have, and then um, unknown stuff from the 19th century. Uh, you know the, the 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 uncommon music from the common practice period, I guess you could call it. Um, how did that develop? Well, I think because. I remember early on in, in the youth orchestra I played in um, in Northeast Pennsylvania, um, a friend of mine who was the flutist there, his brother, um, the flutist was um, Ed Borgo, and his brother was the composer Richard Borgo. And um, I think just interacting with a composer that early in my education, um, he was always pointing out new pieces to me. And Ed uh, was always into new music, and I, I think um, my experience in high school at the Pennsylvania Governor State Governor School for the Arts during one of the, I think the the between my junior and senior years of high school, I worked with composers, and and I remember um, being uh, you know playing the Burial Opus Zoo in high school and things like that, and that music just at that age there, you were. Either one or the other of these two pers- two people, one who was turned off by um, contemporary music and one who was fascinated by it, and I was the latter. And so um, I think 
I happened to be lucky to be exposed to new music early by people who created it and by people who recreated it through performance. And so um, I just, uh, I have a kind of obsessive personality. <laughs> Anybody who knows me knows that. Uh, if I'm on a topic that um, interests me, I just think that everybody should be interested in it, and uh, it can be really boring at a party. Um, the, um, but, but I think that was it, that, that just I was exposed to it at the right time, and I, I like um, the energy that the search for new music brings to my, um, my career, to my practice sessions. Um, uh, and I think the other thing about new music playing is that if a piece uh, interests me enough to learn it, uh, I re I'll talk about it in terms of the Stockhausen in Freundschaft. Um, for some years ago, I, I saw that piece listed in, I think, the repertoire for the, uh, the Munich competition. And so I got it from Trevco. I've been a Trevco <laughs> um, customer for decades. And here was this piece that I simply didn't understand. And um, at, I could have just put it in my filing cabinet and forgotten about it, but there was something about it that the fact that I didn't understand it bothered me more than um, anything else. So I thought, here's a piece of music by a composer who is world-renowned, and I don't get it. What's the matter with me? So I, I kept that on my stand for weeks, months, finally... I figured it out to my satisfaction. And then the question remained, well, if it took me that long to figure it out, what chance does my audience have, if I play this on a recital, what chance does my audience have of, of understanding it? So I've, I've taken that approach every time I have a, a new piece. I, I have to, to learn the piece as if I wrote the piece. And if it excites me, I've got to, performing in a way that I hope will be as exciting to someone in the audience as it was for me. So um, to the, this broad, long answer to that question is, um, why am I interested in it? Well, because it interests me. <laughs> and um, I, I've, I've always wondered, you know, if, if in the lesson I was presented with a, a, a piece by whatever era, my first instinct is to go and say, well, what else is there? And, uh, you know, if, if you learn the Telemann F minor sonata, what else did Telemann write from bassoon? And if Telemann was writing at the time, who else was writing at the time? And, and on and on. And you just build this web of connections and, um, um, you know, find the stories. That, if I could do one little promotion about <laughs> a piece uh, back with, with Trevco, I've, I've got a few uh, – Editions with with uh, Trevco, one of which is uh, the Trio de Salon by um, a woman with the greatest name, Marie Felice, uh, uh, Comtesse de Grandval. Wait, de Reis. Wait, now I can't. <laughs> <laughs> Marie Felice de Reis, Vicomtesse de Grandval. So you can just look it up under the Grandval uh, Trio for oboe, bassoon, and piano. This is. Um, First of all, a charming, incredibly beautiful little uh, trio written by um, a woman who 
She wrote it when she was 17. She, her family has uh, a castle, an estate in the, the Loire Valley in France, but also, um, like so many of the wealthy in, uh, in France, had a home in Paris. And by, by the time she was 17, when she wrote this piece, she had um, composition lessons with um, Flato, who, who was a one-hit wonder with the opera Martha. Um, she was friends and... Uh, part-time student of Saint-Saëns. She studied piano with Chopin. So, you know, pretty amazing pedigree there. But because she was a woman, her works were um, very rarely played, but she found that she could get them played by hosting um, musical salons in Paris, by by sponsoring musicians of, of every stripe. And, and um, while she... Um, uh, while she was was promoting her works, um, the the chauvinism of the time you know worked against her. They said, "Well, the only reason we're we're listening to this is because she paid for it." Well, she paid for it because that was the only way she could get her works played. So there was this this reverse uh, discrimination there, or, or well, not reverse discrimination, but but she had the entrepreneurial spirit that we're we're so you know, which is a buzzword for today. And she she was talented. She was gregarious. She she um, for all the the sponsorship of her own uh, works that she had to finance. She also financed so many others. She was one of Sanson's biggest financial supporters. So um, I I bring that up as a work, an example of a work um, from the 19th century, from the, the period of music that gets played more than any other period, um, that um, I was I was happy to uh, make an addition for. And so that can be um, the next piece of new music for some of the oboe and bassoonists out there. Um, take a look at it. The, the trio by the trio de Salon by Grandval. I love it. And didn't Ives do the same thing? Yeah, basically. Yeah, he's, he's famous for having you know, uh, worked in the insurance business or, or, or actually helped to, to was one of the founders of modern insurance. But, um, yeah, he, he, um, he did that because no one was, uh, likely to perform his music. And it was, uh, near the end of his life, I think, when Leonard Bernstein actually performed the second symphony of Ives and, uh, supposedly Ives heard it on the radio and danced a jig after the performance. <laughs> but, you know, there's, it's if there are those those composers out there with stories like this, um, uh, I I think it's it's a great privilege to be able to bring those stories to light and um, and yeah we'll still have the Poulenc trio to play again but how about Grandval one night? Mm-hmm. You know? Switching directions a little bit. I'd love to ask you about your approach to reed making and some advice that you can give for the struggling reed makers out there. Okay. Um, I'll mention again uh, both Hugh Cooper and Richard Bean as um, major influences in the reed making part of, of my, my training. Um, Cooper was, was just a, a fanatic about um, process and uh, Acoustics and the facts of bassoon playing, rather than uh, you know the, the fairy tales, as he used to say. Um, he he in in a, a read theory class that I took with him once. He I'll never forget this this saying. He said, "Don't don't make reads 
make the same read over and over. So he was very um, um, careful to um, uh, do research on read design. And um, he, had, he had, was famous for his handouts. And, and I have uh, copies of handout that he um, made with um, comparison of uh, a German-style read based on the reads of Knockenhauer and, and Moeller and then uh, and a prototype of a, what he called an American scrape read, a Garfield read, and then um, the, what he called the Cooper read, which was an amalgam of what he felt were the best um, practices of the others, and also um, his uh, sort of acoustical analysis of those reads. So that was just that mindset was a very big um, influence on my approach. And it was also, um, it was like reading a, a medical treatise and, and thinking, oh, that's why my arm doesn't work right. <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or, you know, it was, it was working with Hugh Cooper um, that uh, I learned the the physical, acoustical workings of the reed, at least as as he described them. And then um, Richard Bean uh, was fantastic in his ability to diagnose things. And so he also took these reeds that uh, I'll, I'll, I'll quote a, a phrase I used before. When I was in my first job in Savannah, I learned what I didn't know. Well, I learned when I came back to Michigan, how little I knew about reed making. So um, with the combination of Richard's skill in reed making and Cooper's uh, analytical approach, I came to mine. Now, it's it's funny when, uh, you know, to hear that someone asked a question about reed making because <laughs> I, I'm amazed when um, some potential high school student comes in and, and tells me something they've heard about my read style. I thought, do I have a read style? <laughs> How do you know about it? <laughs> uh, so um, I play on reads that are, I guess, depending on the perspective, slightly harder than, than typical orchestral American orchestra read or a lot harder. But that's because I play a lot of recital music and sometimes all of that new music and the sky high stuff uh, requires a slightly different um, uh, read. So without getting technical as to measurements, I am, I can say that I use the Bell um, H shape, the, the Hertzberg style shape. Um, um, my reads are 56 millimeters long. I don't know if that's what, what it was asking about the question, but to, to the advice that I would give is um, if they are um, getting started on read making, I would say Get every possible read-making book, video, um, online source, and for a period, follow that method. No matter what you what you do currently or what your teacher does, if you if someone has a published method and that method is successful, you should try it. Start to finish. Do exactly what they say, and then after trying that, if you have your own method, um, take from that other method the things that worked better and discard those that didn't. And then go to another time. This is a great summer project. You know, for a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. take one, one, take the glickman Popkin book, for instance. And then for a few, the next time, take maybe George Sakikini's book or on and on and on. And um, go to every one of them, adopt the best practices, throw away the other ones. And then you'll come to your best uh, read-making process. I think that's what 
developed mine because that's what I did, you know, um, and and don't second guess the the author whose book you're looking at, you know, dive in, do it all. And then when you're ready to move on, um, uh, take the best practices and make them your own. You're a very renowned pedagogue, and admission to your studio is competitive. And one thing our student listeners really love us to ask is when you're listening to auditions, and I know you talked about the DMA a little bit already, um, what makes a student stand out, and how, how can they best display their potential in that type of setting? Okay. Um, Well, first of all, the audition situation itself couldn't be more frightening for students. You know, <laughs> uh, you, you come in, you've got a 15-minute block of time to help. You know, this this person sitting behind the desk um, to help guide your future, which is as intimidating for me as it is for them. Believe me. Uh, so, um, what I want to know when that student comes in the room is, first of all. Yes, I'm going to be listening to your playing. Yes, I will have read your application and your resume, and I've gotten a sense of of who you are, maybe by email conversations, maybe a Skype lesson, maybe an in-person lesson. But in the actual audition, um, of course I'll be listening to your sound, but uh, because of many of the things we've mentioned before about how, how late in life most bassoonists play, I hear a variety of sounds, and of course... Uh, you know, a sound that is is warm and dark and and delicious is 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 great. But sound is for me the most personal thing that a student will bring in, and the easiest to adjust later on. So if for some reason the sound isn't right, that's not a big deal. If the intonation is good, that's one of the first um, most attractive things that I find about playing. If I'm if I don't have to um, if I don't look have to look forward to lessons where I'm just, you know, talking about basic intonation. That's a good plus. So, so please play in tune. After um, intonation and sound, um, the the technique you display, clarity of your finger tongue coordination, um, of course, is 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 important. But putting all of that together, those, those are the most basic things. Do you play in tune and do you play things well and cleanly? Um, the, what I mentioned before, this 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 idea that that your choice of of school and teacher uh, really helps to determine your future. I'm also I'm going to interact with you. I'm going to either you know play really bad piano accompaniment to what you've brought in if I can do that, and I'll see how you how you react. Um, I'll I'll be interested in how you interact with me. Uh, you know, these are personal relationships of students to teacher. What I was saying about Mr. Garfield earlier, and the fact that I still call him Mr. Garfield at my age, um, that was the, one of the most important relationships of my life. And so um, I have to put myself in the, the student's shoes and say, am I, am I going to be able to bring something good to this relationship? And so... Um, I would say to the students, be interactive with with the the teacher you're playing for. Um, uh, of course, we'll read all of the the you know the essays that go online that you, that every university asks for, and and I want to know that. But if 
if you come in to the room and say I ask you a question about uh, uh, the etude you've played and I ask for something different, I want to see that you are interested in applying those suggestions. So the, the, the interactive nature of the audition is as important as all that preparation you brought to it because that's what we musicians do. We, we prepare and prepare and prepare and then we go into a rehearsal and the conductor says, no, do it this way. So if you're potentially coming to audition for me and to study with me, if I ask you to change something in the audition and you do it uh, well or you uh, you might have another question about it and, and I can clarify that, if that happens um, in a positive way, that's great. If it doesn't or if um, you don't understand things and you don't or you, you seem reticent to take a suggestion, why would you want to study with, with that person? So um, I would say prepare uh, prepare to the best of your abilities. Don't go far beyond them. Don't don't play. <laughs> if if you come in and play the Jolivet Concerto badly, that doesn't reflect well in your audition. <laughs> you know? uh, but if you play something more reasonable and you play it beautifully, or um, you give a, a true picture of your your state of playing at this moment, that's what I want to hear. And um, if if on top of that, I sense that we'd be a good partnership together. That that's a successful audition. What is your favorite memory of a past performance? Oh, that I read that uh, in your set of questions, and I, I thought, what what? How can I possibly? Um, I I think I narrowed it down this morning to uh, a performance at uh, the Spoleto Festival in the early '80s. It was the the first time I went to Europe um, uh, in this. Amazing, gorgeous medieval town of Spoleto in Umbria, um, and we were playing uh, the the final concert uh, in this big piazza in front of their their church, the Duomo, um, and it was the Berlioz um, Damnation of Faust. So here we are in Italy in the summer in an open air concert, huge crowd, and we're playing this absolutely amazing piece. Berlioz is one of those personalities that. You know, thank history for Berlioz because you, whatever you, whatever cliches you think about French music, then there's Berlioz. <laughs> and, um, the, there's a, a moment, be, well, first of all, sh- selfishly as a bassoonist, that is one of the most amazing works for, for bassoon parts. Just, uh, there's, there's, as with every Berlioz piece, four bassoons, sometimes four in unison, sometimes four as a quartet, sometimes um, sound effects. Near the near the end of the work, there's um, this amazing section called the the ride into hell, and um, at at the line where there's there's something about monsters and and birds are poking out their eyes. <laughs> um, Berlioz uses trombones and bassoons on the worst, nastiest low notes of the instrument to this day. And I think he probably went up to the bassoons and said, play me your worst, nastiest notes, and then <laughs> took notes and put them into the piece at that point. And that, that among dozens, hundreds of other um, memories, that stuck out as one that I could talk about because um, it was... It, it exemplified for me one of what are the, the privileges of playing music. You know, I, I work at a university where at any given moment, somebody might be creating a, a protein or doing gene therapy or building a, a new kind of bridge that doesn't, you know, 
fall down when people drive or walk on it. And and I play bassoon, you know. <laughs> but um, that that experience and many others of of being in in a place in a moment, um, sharing this expressive art with all those people sitting out there and with all those people um, sitting next to you and playing these these things. That's that's my privilege. That's that's you know why we continue to do this. And that's to tie it up with, with the idea of auditions. One of the other things that amazes me every year is that there will be some, some new student who comes in, sits down and starts playing. And I think you were for some bizarre twist of fate, you were destined to play this instrument. And, and it keeps happening all the time. There are people who just are bound to play the bassoon or, or to play the oboe or to play the ocarina or whatever. But in, in this, in the 21st century, that still happens. And so that's, that's the reason to keep going on. And, and I, I hope whoever on campus is, you know, working on gene therapy likes to hear music. So. <laughs> <laughs> wow. This was such an amazing interview when our listeners uh, inevitably want to follow up with you in your career, where can they find you on the internet? Okay, well, my personal website um, is uh, jefflymanbassoon.com and all oh, one word. Um, my studio also has a, um, a big YouTube channel with uh, about 110, 120 videos so far that always updates. I'm very proud of the fact um, that it's mostly live recordings. So, those performances are up there, warts and all. If there's good stuff, it's up there. If there's mistakes, it's up there. And some of the biggest mistakes on my channel are mine, not my students. <laughs> uh, but but for you know potential recruits, they you know go and see what what uh, my students play on their degree recitals. And if that's if that's attractive to you, come. If not, you are you know don't. There's plenty of other opportunities out there. So um, we you can just search University of Michigan Bassoon Studio on YouTube, and then um, if anybody wants to contact me by email, it's jlym at umich, U-M-I-C-H dot E-D-U. So um, jlym at umich dot E-D-U. Awesome, and we'll link to your YouTube and website in the um, show description as well. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was awesome. Well, thank you, and uh, uh, I, I love this project that you're doing. I think you're, you're doing amazing, you're creating an amazing resource, and uh, I am so honored to be a part of it. Well, we hope you enjoyed that interview. Do not forget to like us on social media. If you like what you hear, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. You can listen on SoundCloud, YouTube, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts. Our next episode will feature Dr. Courtney Miller, the Assistant Professor of Oboe at the University of Iowa. And stay tuned for a special one-year anniversary episode airing on December 1st.